Welcome back to Art Matters, the podcast for artists. I'm your host, Isaac Mann. On today's episode, we have the dramatic conclusion of my conversation with the artist James English Leary. Last time, James and I spoke at length about the state of art education. Today, we discuss his new watercolors, collecting art, different kinds of change, de-skilling, space and depiction, 19th century French painting, and how unconditional support for an artist, like love, is for babies. We also talk Renoir, Matisse, Jack Whitten, David Hockney, and a couple others. This conversation with James Leary was a joy, so please enjoy, and happy holidays. Break and ask about this painting behind you, mostly because I've been staring at it the whole time we've been talking. Ooh. This painting is by Keegan Monaghan, and oh, it's like okay. a really important painting for him, I think, because it was like the first... It was a painting where he sort of like moved into a more monumental scale, like moved away from kind of easel painting into this like, you know, bigger scale that I think has been an important part of his work ever since. Uh, there's a, there's a version of this painting that's like, you know, 18 by 24. Or, Which would or be small. more traditional to his, uh, to his work. Well, yeah, I, I mean, this is older then or newer. This is, I don't know when this painting is from, but I isn't, I mean, God, I love this painting. Me I, too. It's so much fun to look at. So much fun. Never kind of never get sick of looking at this painting. I would believe it. Which yeah. is like kind of what, I mean, if, I mean, it's an interesting thing, right? Mm. Like, we think about art in all these ways and I, in terms of how that it circulates as currency, what it means, all this stuff. I went to school with like good Marxists. So we were taught that like the domestic situation, like art in the home was part of art collecting, which is crass and like part of a kind of degraded. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Okay. Like that's, that's, and, and, and like taste, like don't even mention taste. Taste is just the residue of other people's privilege. Taste is what rich people say is good. Wow. I mean, that, that, this is, I'm quoting yeah, like yeah. what, but I think like the question of, uh, could you look at this painting every day and just keep wanting to look at it is, it's an underrated, I mean, maybe that's reactionary or something, or maybe I'm, mm. I'm sympathizing too much with, uh, with, uh, art collectors now, mm. but I think, but I think having art in your house is great. And I think that something happens when you look at a painting, if you go in a museum or a gallery, you'll look at a painting for like three seconds and try to give it everything you've got. You'll mm. maybe give it like 60 or 70% on a good day of just like looking the shit out of that painting, mm -hmm. you know, really trying to give it a good look, but probably realistically, right? Three, five, ten seconds, or maybe a minute or two if you're really. Mm -hmm. But when you when you have art at home, you you know, you look at it for like ten seconds, uh, or you look at it for like half a second, ten or fifty times a day for ten years or whatever, and it works on you in this different way. And I feel that about this. Do you think that's something you could have recognized before you bought or traded for that painting? Or is that something that's the happy accident of realizing you have brought something in your collection that was right? Well, I don't own this. I mean, he owns this painting. It's just he's okay. let us have it here. But Perfect. I don't know. You know, I think I feel, I guess, that... Um, I mean, I think the best art to own for me mm -hmm. are like the extremely quirky and 
uh, early and small and minor efforts of people that I know and love. I feel like the most important great painting of like uh, a friend of mine who's a committed painter, like that should be in the Whitney or something, or that oh, should be a in a, point. in a public trust, you know, like, and, and so the things, things I love having are like these weird cast off things and things that are, are pretty great, but are also quirky and small. I mean, I, I really, I feel like, and, and it's also, I mean, there's this interesting, I guess people who collect very deeply have a different relationship to this, but I feel like it's a whole, yeah, it's a whole thing. Mm -hmm. I feel like to me, like my, there's, I have like two categories of like artists that I love. Mm. There's like the artists from history, you know, the greatest artists, whatever, you know, like um, Goya or whatever, Mm. you know? And then there's like people that, you know, their work very deeply because they're your peers And it's like the way you've engaged with their work because it's happened over time and you've had like multiple conversations with them, multiple studio visits. That's like a very deep way of loving another artist is to like know them over the course of their life and over the course of their career and Mm. through many different kinds of work. And um, so I don't know. That was something that two things come to me. One, I, I guess I didn't know this until you started talking, but I do agree with you. My favorite pieces around my house are um, little drawings, mostly drawings and sketches, works on paper that I've gotten from friends and um, that remind me of not just where they were, but where we were, you know, the, the sort of nostalgic thing, but also it's not just a shared experience that I love. It is the, the mark making of a friend. I honestly, I would say that there's a, there's an argument to be made for the drawings, having a lot of honesty that, you know, you can see in the, 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 the pencil line, something that maybe you can't see in the guy's painting. They're not saying it's better or worse, but maybe you can't even see it necessarily when you're talking to the person, you know, something about it's a very vulnerable thing, a pencil line. Right. And then I'm thinking of the one kind of larger scale painting I have, uh, by my buddy, Mike. And I kind of think you're right that that sort of belongs in a museum too. Like I love looking at that painting. I'll never get sick of looking at that painting, but maybe it, one day should go somewhere that's, that's one day yeah one that's day. the key that's the key point also is that i think like artworks travel through time i mean in this whole question of like where should art go and the art market and who supports art i mean i feel like a lot of the people who buy primary market art you know and like i have nothing but love for those people i mean the people who maybe it's speculative or whatever but the yep. people who spend like 5 or 10,000 dollars on a painting I mean, you know, that's that's what supports artists like in the short term, you know, in the present. But I think like um, in the long term, like um, obviously this doesn't happen to most paintings. But the thing that you want for the best paintings in the long term is for them to end up in the public trust, you know, so that people can go to municipal museums and you know, teenagers and stuff can go figure out how to look at paintings. And um, 
I heard this great story. This is this is not like even kind of that related, but it's so great. I was reading Jean Renoir, the filmmaker's autobiography, mm-hmm. and he told this story. So Jean Renoir was this great filmmaker, and the way that he financed most of his movies, you know, is he had like 200 of his dad's paintings, and he just like sold them off as he was going to fund his life and to fund his movies. Mm. During World War II, maybe like, um, I don't know, 41 or 42, like things are, it's starting to be maybe 40. It's starting to be like obvious that the Nazis are going to take Paris. Mm -hmm. Everyone's extremely nervous. And um, Jean Renoir was like really good friends with Paul Cezanne's son. Mm -hmm. And so they're talking and they're like, we need to get the fuck out of here. You know, like shit could get really bad. So they went and bought a jalopy, a a shitbox car, and they put all of their, both of their families, their kids, their, their spouses in this car. And they strapped onto the roof of the car. Like each of them had, you know, like 150 Cezanne and Renoir paintings. That's true. This is in his memoir. Wow. This is in Jean Renoir's memoir. And they drive south out of Paris because they're like, the Nazis are going to be coming through, you know, whatever, you know, Belgium or uh, through the north. They drive like all the way into somewhere in, you know, uh, deep in the southwest French countryside. And they find this farm that has this gigantic barn. And they go to the, to the, farmers and they ask can we you know we'll pay you can we use can we stay in your barn you know and so they spent the rest of the war like three or four years in this barn and they hung up all the saison that you know they were in this barn with like 50 foot walls all around Mm. and they hung all these paintings so there were just like this like whatever couple hundred renoirs and saisons and probably some other people you know that were hung up in this barn and then at the end of the war uh they took all the paintings down and went back to paris and those paintings continued to get you know accessioned or auctioned off or whatever and has continued to make those two families i'm sure financially comfortable forever but like you know what I mean? Like those yeah. paintings like traveled through time and yeah. were in, were basically in, you know, hadn't sold during the lifetime of the person who made them. We're still like basically in this big pile. There was still the problem of the kids. I mean, it's like this mm. b- big baby boomer thing that's happening now is like these consumerist generations of parents are dying off and this like, what do we do with all this shit? So there, yeah. all these paintings were still this like problem of like, God, what do we do with all this stuff? Over time, they've found their way. I'm sure almost all of them now are in museums and in public collections. But so, I don't know. It's it's just really interesting how... I think people make too much of, like, the primary market and, like, what art is doing when it initially gets sold oh, that's off. That's a great point. And, right. and yeah. we're, like, so fixated on the art market. And I think a the lot of it is... beginning strokes. Yeah, like, it's like... Yeah, it's that's like the, the whole idea of art, right? It's, it's supposed to have a life. It might have a life. You don't know, but... It, and even if it doesn't have a life in a museum, lots of paintings, like, end up on someone's wall and... You know, even if it's like, you know, it gets 
whatever. Like a lot of art doesn't get thrown out and also doesn't end up in a museum. And mm-hmm. probably a lot of that stuff ends up like in someone's house and someone like looks at it. Like, and it's important to remember that because while I do personally look back at uh, one or two museum shows that I was taken to as a kid who didn't like art that kind of are still very much in my brain, you know, those kind of first inspiring whatever it was, painting might be a thing. You're also just as informed by the stuff that was laying around the house or hanging on the walls in the living room or, you know, these things where it's not, those things have a life too. And it's not too crazy to say that the American Sublime show that came to the Minneapolis Institute of Art in the 90s had the same effect on me as this, uh, you know, this little handmade cup or sculpture that was a, a, um, a an aunt had made that was just sitting there in you know dining room table or something forever just great color great shape very handmade you know so it's uh, i like that because sometimes it does need to be hit on the head a little bit that um yes uh focusing on that that first first layer uh, it's it's giving it too much power and appreciating the life that a lot of work has and uh and it's a great story i want to look it up and get more details for like I hope there lots... will be a picture of that jalopy uh I, <laughs> there isn't one that i recall in the book but it's such a great story but i mean a lot of the artists that are like the really important artists who set the tone for modernism or whatever and are still artists that formed a dominant part of the way we think about being artists a lot of those people were making art for a much, much, much smaller art world than Absolutely. than we're in. I mean, even in the 80s, people talked about the downtown 500, that there were 500 people. It was like dancers, painters, da-da-da. I mean, now there's like, I don't know, there's like 150,000 creative whatever artists. Or, but, and in, and in like, you know, modernism, early modernism, I mean, it was unimaginably small what the audience was like you know for like van gogh i mean there that's like the most famous thing about van gogh is that there was like no one to look at those paintings that he made fanatically every day for those 10 years when he was painting Mm. um and it's not to be like you know he desperately wanted to sell paintings and probably if he had been able to sell paintings it, I think, is not going out on such a limb to think that he, his mental illness and depression might not have killed him. Mm. You know, like, it really is like, I mean, I think there's this paradox where I think to have a life in the arts, you need to be willing to do it in spite of earthly rewards but you also, but it's not to say that you don't like desperately want that. And I think like both of those things, you know, are, are true. And like when you're making art, you, you want an audience, you want it to go somewhere, you want it to, you want people to tell you, you know, I think you have, every artist has like a kind of Cinderella complex of wanting to be loved, appreciated. I think it's it's funny to uh, just 
extrapolate a little bit more on this idea because it's uh, getting too personal now, perhaps. But I always thought that um, the place I wanted my art to go more than any other is a museum, but more than that, a public museum. Like, and it's interesting to disseminate that idea a little bit because on the one hand, what is that statement? That statement is something that I built out of, well, I think my art's very good and I want to be a great artist. And what does a great artist have? Well, they have their art in museums. However, the other read is that the stuff that inspired me as a little kid, besides the stuff in my, you know, parents' house, was a cool painting in a museum. And therefore, I just think that it's it's interesting to consider those two. They're a bit at odds with each other because maybe it comes down to that ego. That ego is leading the first statement versus what's leading the second is a desire to give back. A desire to give back to uh, a history of art making that put a big landscape painting in front of me that I saw as a kid that was just like, yeah, I want to do that. That's That's what I want to do. And I think that a lot of things in this life and in art are born out of such conflict where, yeah, it's, it's two-sided. And I think artworks for artists are like transitional objects. Mm -hmm. They're both like, they're, you know, they're like, they're like an adult version of what happens for infants with like blankies and stuff like that Mm. they're they're a bridge between like um internal experiences like fantasy or um instincts or strong affects and objective reality and it's like you know a, a kind of a bridge between um internal and external experience it's a it's a concretization of experience which experience um sort of implies like something that's internal but also something that's external right like uh and i think so i think i don't know you know i i think even you know it's yeah i think it's a i think it's a way of feeling you know like you're you're um, constructing this bridge between things that are really internal with something that becomes part of this, um, you know, social, physical, architectural, you know, like of the world stuff that's of the world. Jumping in just for a moment to explain that after this answer, James and I took a brief break before getting back on mic and getting back to the conversation as follows. I missed the beginning of it, but just to, I know we were breaking down the idea of Buddhism and, and more so the idea, if you're not analyzing, but you are being attentive to what's happening maybe in your day-to-day life and how that then trickles down and affects your art practice, that's sort of where we were. And you were describing that um, when you get through the desperate stage that an artist often finds themselves at first desperate for anything, gets a little bit of a career or opportunity or successes, that is a very different person than exists later in life once you have more of an ease about it. But if that can just be Yeah, a- well, I think a lot of older artists have already had five or six careers. 
Um, I mean, I was lucky enough to get to know Ron Gorchoff really well. We shared a studio together for a couple of years. And and Ron, I mean, he had, geez, I don't know, he had like five or six different careers. I mean, like he kept changing. And I mean, it's what happens, I think, when you live to be 90 or however old he was. But, but I think like a really hard moment for younger artists seems to be like in this kind of like late, early, early, mid career, like your, your things are, you know, there's shows, there's an appetite, there's a burgeoning market, there's momentum. And it, I think can feel incredibly difficult to pivot or change. Some people seem to be really expert in it and are able to like work between different kinds of things and maintain a kind of continuity of like their, um, you know, uh, authorship or, or what have you. But, but it seems like a lot of people have this feeling that if you've started to become known for something, it can be like an extremely precarious place because if you then pivot strongly, everyone will get scared. Everyone will get confused, you know, your galleries, your collectors who to some extent have, you know, like primary market, it tends to be a kind of speculative economy, like and easily spooked. Yeah. The painting is not, you can't turn around generally after buying a, you know, 10 or $15,000 painting and just like sell it the next day for the same amount of money. It's a kind of investment. So if the artist then like, changes in a very decisive way yeah it can spook people and and p and artists internalize that and i think it's just i don't know it's a i i talking to artists i know who you know are having you know the sort of early or middle point of their careers there seems to be a lot of this um weighing like strategic weighing of how to titrate change or how to, how to introduce change or versatility or, or improvisation into this thing without disrupting the fundamental stability of. Instead of just pulling the bandaid off. Do you, do you, um, was that advice maybe that also came from this artist with these five different chapters in his career or, cause I'm curious about that. And maybe if you could go into if an artist wants to change and is in that career point that you spoke about, do you think that you should look for these strategies that allow you from uh, to move from point A to point B without scaring the audience? Or do you think that, and I, again, I'm curious what this older artist said, that it's best to just uh, embrace the, the change when you want it? I think it's a really personal question. I don't mm. I don't think that there's a right way to do it. And I also don't I mean I think that on the one hand what artists I think like hope for is unconditional support from their galleries and their friends and right. you know this idea of like no, I'm really invested in you. Like right. you're the That's one that I um I think it's just would be naive to think that there aren't certain big reversals or changes that artists can do in their career that won't completely baffle and upset everyone. I mean, I think what Gustin went through, Mm -hmm. you know, and it's like he, we can see it now and everyone loves Gustin and he's like emerged, you know, he's like in a, in his way, he's like one of the, 
painters that I feel like so many painters have to pass through. You, you, he's so influential in that because of that late, like, figurative work. But, I mean, that was brutal to do that. Like, you can't sugarcoat how brutal that was and how bitter he was that Morton Feldman and all these friends of his turned away oh, yeah. from him. Like, I... So I think you kind of can't have it both ways. You you can, I mean, you can want it. That's not a good way to put it. But I just think there are times when asserting your freedom as an artist, like really might cost you something hmm. um, like it did with Philip Gustin, you know, who I think just felt aggrieved and embittered for the rest of his life. And felt like he, for the rest of his life, was chasing this thing that he had had and lost, this infinite thing, you know. And he, uh, I just want to. You're very right to his story is so known to so many people, but I like the fact that what you pointed out is the friends that he, and I, I think that that's key. That this this idea that. Sure, he was going to lose the gallery and his sort of standing in the art world. But, you know, uh, Mar- uh, Morty Feldman leaving him and uh, I forget who else, but, you know, closer friendships. Like, you can, I think every artist listening can understand the heartbreak that when the one thing you want and that you rarely get, but you do often get from fellow artists and friends, that unconditional support. And that breaks away. Yeah, heartbreaking. I mean, you don't get over that probably. Unconditional love is for babies. Mm, I mean, I that's you a know, great point. Like, absolutely I, like right. you don't. It doesn't exist. Like it doesn't exist. Um, that that painting of of uh, Martin Feldman turning away mm. with this like uh, you know gnarl of cigarette smoke and and like the back of his head with all these scabs and patches on it and stuff is so. I mean, yeah, I think it really embittered him and it really hurt. And he had other friends. I mean, I think he, you know, had friends who maybe weren't like the like diehard committed modernists that, you know, he, it's not like he was completely abandoned by everyone, but I was I'm looking talk- up that painting now, by the way. Oh yeah, it's a great Heartbreaking. I, I mean, I was talking to someone who had him as a teacher at, um, at the studio school mm. in, I guess, like, 76, 77. So, you know, deep into, like, you know, he he took a job at Boston at BU and at the studio school because not because he was, like, vocationally oriented towards teaching. It was because he, like, didn't make money from his work for, you know, eight or some odd years. And... um I mean, this this guy who I was talking about who had had him, I mean, he had a lot of positive things to say about him, but he said he was kind of a wreck. You know, he was like, would come in and sort of like drink a bottle of scotch and was chain smoking and Mm. was filled with grievance and filled with all of this heavy, dark shit. And and maybe like kind of found his ballast in, in... the greater like art history instead of the art world was like, I mean, he said, it's great. There's that, there's that painting of his that has like Tiapolo and mm-hmm. Piera della Francesca written on it. Yeah. And this guy I was talking to who had been his student, he said, that's, that's like what he talked about. That's what he loved. Like he talked about 
you know, um, Renaissance and, and Baroque and Rococo Italian painting and was obsessed with Piera della Francesca. And maybe, I mean, maybe that's like part of the way that painters or artists are able to weather, um, uh, you know, um, extreme disappointments in their career is to somehow be experience yourself as being in conversation with like the artists that you've been looking at and caring about for your whole life and and the, the people that you regard as the you know the people who, who have made the deepest statements about you know space or whatever you really like care about most deeply as a painter um, absolutely yeah that's where you go for camaraderie right i think that's why those of us who paint or still use these uh, these tactile mediums uh, that's such a boon to have this wealth of history and conversation that you know when disappointment uh, arrives you can uh, you can have conversations like that i think it's um healthy healthier than the scotch yeah. But let me um, let me finally uh, take this downturned uh, moment in the conversation to switch over a little bit more pointedly at um, at you and your work. And this is probably a, a very fair compa- uh, unfair comparison, rather. But what you showed me before we started recording was a handful of watercolors uh, that you've done since you left the studio at mana and i'm curious i haven't seen that kind of work from you before um i understand certainly there are limitations to uh, being between studios so that could just be the answer to the question but if you were to sort of uh come with me on this parallel and see this as a minor change in your your working means your your studio practice do you find um what do you think is coming from these watercolors right now? Is it a way to keep your hand moving? Is this stuff that will never see the light of day because um, it doesn't maybe fit aesthetically or conceptually with the work that you're known for? Um, is this the future of your work? Any of these uh, sound accurate? or And if not, just tell yeah. us a little bit about the new watercolors. Well, I think I had um, developed a body of work had, had followed this body of work and, um, you know, shaped canvases and shaped panels. And, you know, a lot of that work was sort of about, um, I guess, I mean, one of the things we were talking about before we started recording was, um, you know, how different kinds of work require editing at different stages, you oh, know, right, and right. how you know, certain people maybe just, you know, make a bunch of stuff and then, you know, edit it after the fact. And we were sort of talking about some people we knew who were very painstaking about editing as they were working or before the fact and worked in a very slow and methodical way. And I feel like a lot of those shaped canvases, I mean, a lot of what I felt went into those was a kind of like rehearsal where I would like spend a lot of time like working up to the moment when I like made the ground. Cause there was mm. something, um, there was something, uh, terminal and permanent. Like once you cut out the ground, mm. like that was a big move that 
you know, I mean, you could like add, you could glue on a little piece or whatever. You could still fuck with it mm-hmm. in some ways, but there was something I felt where that practice had gone was in this way where, you know, a lot of work happened in this, like, you know, making drawings and working up to this, like, you know, defining the, the, cut out shape or whatever. And then once you had that, that was like you kind of reset and then found this space within it or whatever. So there was a, there's a big constraint to working on shaped grounds Sure, that I still find really interesting. But to me, this work is just much more, uh, you know, is much more, I mean, some of it's about, you know, keeping the hand moving. Some of it's about being much weirder and opening up, the field of the imagery and to, to new things and, and, you know, um, opening up the, the language a bit. And, and then I think some of it's about sort of wanting to get back to the problem of depiction of space within a rectangle. Yeah. What's it like being back with negative space again? That's the first question I had, but I was saving it for later. Well, it's, 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 I mean, it's a really important, I, I mean, I think like painting on a deep level is basically about space Hmm. Yeah, and not, I'm sure that there are limits to that um, conception of it, but I think painting is basically about, making different ideas about space come into being. And, and I, so I don't know, I, I, I have been wanting to, um, you know, get back to a problem of like really trying to depict and reckon with space for a while. I mean, I also, I mean, I never really thought very much about landscape. I never made landscape paintings and, over the last year I've started t- t- making landscape and making plein air paintings. And, mm. um, you know, I don't know where any of that stuff will really go, but, but there is something about, yeah, I don't, I don't know if I have anything intelligent to say about it. There's something mm. like very basic to me, like the, the most, this is like personal. This isn't a proclamation about art history to sure. me, like the most perfect, and um, the deepest and the most um, interesting painting is like French painting from like, you know, I don't know, 1860 to 1920 or something like that. These like, um, you know, oftentimes like easel paintings, small rectangles with kind of psychedelic depictions of space mm-hmm. and very challenging ideas about space and depiction in them that seem as if they're not a part of a, um, pre, uh, a pre strategized idea of aesthetics, but are sort of constructed in their making (laughs) in a very precarious and immediate way. That's just like some of the work I, I like just, that was work that I, it's so interesting. Yeah. People would talk about that. People, I would talk about that as a period of color and a period of, uh, you know, finally uh, painting tubes and and describing with color. But and of course, space is a part of that too. But is it not also the color that 
that brings you to that pronouncement that this is the stuff that is, that, you know, puts it on that, that high pedestal for you. It is, it's more the construction, which I, you used that word before and I did want to get back to it. I think construction is a, um, sort of a, an interesting word and also a telling word for an artist to use, painter mm. to use. I guess what, I guess what starts to happen in that painting is it's like this moment when, um, painting is still connected decisively to depiction. You know, people were still like working in traditional picture formats, you know, landscape, portrait, still life. But there was this possibility in that work of like incursion of personal hallucination, mm. um, abstraction. And it's, it's a little bit, you know, it's one of those things where, and I, whatever, I mean, I love abstract painting, but there's something that once a painting loses its connection to depiction and, but I mean, in a way like pure abstraction is the people that pull that off. I mean, that's just like, I was looking at some Howard Hodgkin paintings mm -hmm. and I was just like, man, this is, you know, this is paint, pure painting. It's so great. But I think in a, in a way, like there's just such a great tension in that French painting between depiction and observation on the one hand with personal hallucination, formal innovation, abstraction, whimsy, um, irrationality mm. and all of that, that tension between those things. And, and, and yet, and then yes, like all these, um, quite, you know, big quandaries about how to build a painting, the construction of the painting, like, what is a painting, you know, that the beginning of that question in quotation marks of like, what is a painting? So to bring it back around, then do you find that this love or this emphasis that you're putting on uh, this particular era of painting is in some ways responsible for your feeling now that you're maybe you're trying to exercise with these watercolors of um, or the plein air painting like you talked about is to uh, Accepting that you have created a body of work, a very successful functioning body of work for many years, that these other questions, uh, what's a good way to put it? Like questions or um, interests or uh, attractions or seductions, they're bringing you to, around to want to explore outside of your body of work. And and if if that is the case, I'm sorry. I, I recognize that this is something that you very likely don't know the answer to now. But you know, is this something that you think could continue to take on more forms, more importance, or is it just too hard to say now? It just seems like such a such a wealth of new exploration from an artist who has something very. Um, tight, formal, and functional. And I, I speak again, as most of the audience knows, as an artist who for the last couple of years has really been in an exploratory space. And I don't really like that word. I don't think art is ever experimenting or explorations. I think those are kind of pejorative in their own way sometimes because it's more like you're looking for something. And I wonder, for me, I'm looking for something because I recognize that what I had before 
had come to a close, like the little chapter ending on it. And that's why I like when you said your uh, former studio mate had five careers, I kind of take a little bit of uh, um, comfort from that. Yeah, I don't know. It's different for everyone. I mean, there are people who, like Gustin, <clears throat> seemed to need to induce violence to have this change. Like he mm. needed to blow something up. There are people like um, who seem to be able to, I mean, I always think about this with Julian Schnabel, where it seems like there were ideas he had about painting, like at the beginning of his public career in the early eighties. And he still makes plate paintings. Mm -hmm. And personally, like I, I, I love him. Yeah. I mean, I think his work is great. And I think he, um, seems to be able to like open up new possibilities and then come back to old possibilities and have different things in the mix. Not buy into the sort of linear history of one's own practice. But it's so personal. I mean, mm. it's just, it's, it's a, I don't know. I, I think this, I would, I'm sorry, yeah, but I would yeah. interrupt and I would just say that yes, it is personal, but it's also just like we have sort of kicked into us um, the idea of the art career I also think it's it's the myriad of different art practices that is also not frowned upon, but not um, given enough uh, uh, emphasis. It, we find ourselves, many artists, I think, in a sort of territory of kind of what you described before. It's like, okay, well, we're doing something and it hit, so either we explode it or we continue on. And I do think because it's so personal, there's a lot of different ways to understand your own personal navigation of art. It's not one or the other. It's not staying true to one idea or blowing it in half. It's like, you know, it's, it's what you need at a given time, right? It's how you feel. Well, and I think for a lot of artists, what that can mean is that, I mean, there are certain changes that are probably welcome. I mean, there are t at times when you can see an artist's career that they like, do something figure something out or hit on something and everyone perks up and it's sure. like part of the zeitgeist and then mm -hmm. you know there's this jack Witten show up at dia beacon now i don't know if you've seen it but no, it's a I body of work that he made i think in the late 70s okay i mean these paintings look like they were made in the last 10 or 15 years they're very they had never been shown before it's a big body of work it's it's i, I mean you wonder about um, I wish I knew more about Jack Whitten's career. You wonder about, like, did he make them all to be shown? And then they weren't. But it's like a big, huge room at the Dia filled with, I don't um, know, 25 or 30 or, you know, of these big process abstractions. Yeah, and you're I, right. They would fit perfectly into any number of... Um, it's pretty wild. I mean, yeah, and you can yeah. think a lot of different things about a show like that. You can mm -hmm. think on one level, like shit you know everyone's like getting rich off some shit that jack witten was doing and no one got it you know they're all they're all they're they're all like these process paintings he figured out this way to lay canvas down on top of these mm -hmm. these embossments and then drag a squeegee or something i'm looking at some studio them. like process shots uh on google right now it's very interesting and very contemporary when you think about that too is that kind of um, you know, besides drips and, and whatever else, this is a, uh, anyway, continue. Sorry. Well, he's a, I mean, it's just, I think he's a guy, he's a, he's a painter that worked in a lot of different ways 
people must have had a hard time making sense of his oeuvre. I mean, mm. I think just being like a black abstract painter was probably already like, yeah. he probably constantly was dealing with confusion around where to slot him in, where he might fit neatly in some pat idea of art history. But I mean, what does it mean to make this huge body of work and then just never show it? I mean, he must have kept these paintings in storage for, you know, he died fairly recently. Like, mm. so I don't know. I mean, I just, I, you know, I think, I, I think ultimately artists just need to make work that excites them. Mm. I, I was looking at a, I, I mean, I feel a little bit like good art feels to me like, and I can see this in my own work and I can see it in other people's work when people are really clear about what they're interested in that obviously that's not the only criteria, but remember like when that David Hockney show was at the Met, I believe. And, um, remember looking at like a, I guess it, maybe it was one of these paintings of like some kind of, um, corny California modernist house mm -hmm. with this like corny manicured lawn on it. Mm -hmm. And he did this thing where he like blocked in, you know, with like, seemed like almost like house paint or something blocked in the green of the lawn. Mm. And then he went in and started to like paint the individual blades of grass. And then it feels like at the exact moment that he stopped being interested in doing that, he just stopped it. And he didn't impose this, thing on himself of like, wait a minute, there's this whole rest of this space in the lawn. Like I set up this thing and now I really need to follow through with like completing this thing that I've set up. No, it felt like he was completely attuned with um, working on the painting in a way that comported with like what his engagement really was. Hmm. And I think like artists just need to be willing to follow their engagement, follow their, um, follow, you know, make work that is interesting to them and not make work that bores them. Hmm. I mean, it makes it, I don't know, maybe, I mean, there's a lot of other things going on, but, um, I think David Hockney is like a, the master of that where I just like every part of David Hockney, every part of every painting or whatever that David Hockney did, I feel like his, um, um, like the emphaticness and the, um, the uh, enthusiasm he has for like that particular problem in the painting. And then I feel like he's also like so expert in not overworking, you know, like, there's never this sense, at least for me, there's never this sense of like, well, I have to finish the painting. Like the painting is done when he is able to fulfill his engagement with it. Oh, that's, I was going to bring up, him up earlier, actually, in terms of his, uh, his show at the Morgan a couple of years back. The oh, drawing that drawing show. show. That was great. And in terms of the, uh, I don't know the last time I saw a show that had that much I don't know, something about the honesty. I mean, obviously, it was also like a travel in time type of show. You know, you see these people age and change. But what I got from it more than that was just this. Something about how it's mostly drawings and not paintings. Like, it, 
it's this very personal. No, I guess going into a David Hockney tangent would be too much. I'm a huge fan and I love how you described him because that is my favorite aspects of David Hockney too, is the, what I would say is just the love of the subject matter and the understanding of what a, a painting needs to function and very rarely doing more than that. Honestly, the amount of fun that guy puts in a painting, it's probably not the adjective you uh, would normally associate with just with great painting, but I just get such a such joy out of this sort of, um, there's a humor, there's a love, you know, all of these terms that I could very easily get on a soapbox because this is what I would love to see more of in contemporary painting is just the sort of like joy that dude seems to emanate when he's painting a tree in the backyard or a, you know, what was I just, I was in LA looking at his piece at LACMA, which by the way, has the worst room at the LACMA. It's like one of those long rectangular paintings and it's in a hallway and there's TVs on the other side and there's chairs in the middle. So you have to like stumble over people to just barely try and understand how this painting works anyway. Um, but, um, but yeah, I, I think there's also some advice that's coming back from years ago about how you can always tell what part of a painting, I guess this is more representational paintings, but, or painters, the part of a painting that someone really liked to paint versus the rest of it. I think that was something I got a lot, actually, is someone who found back in the day of that the object Whatever it was, I would just glue myself to an object and paint it and love painting it and then had this difficult uh, problem of the negative space. Where does it exist now? What what happens? How do I finish a painting? How do I do this in a way that doesn't lie about the fact that I am less interested in something? I mean, this is a... I think these are really important things to ask a, a painter is... Um, and I, I really do, this is going back to it again, but your emphasis on space, whether or not it is the cardinal thing that makes a, a, a painting a, a good painting. I'm not saying that you said that, but a, it's certainly goddamn important. And yeah, I think it's like also, for example, yeah. I would place space above depiction in importance, although I love the problem of depiction in paintings. Oh, me too. And you're, and you're talking about like... yeah. The, the tendency that a lot of painters have, and I've experienced this to like get really excited about an object and to maybe at the expense of a sense of place. It's like a, a too good of a drummer in a uh, punk band. You know, you need to uh, to make a, a pretty basic comparison, but it's, yeah, over depicting something, a drum solo in the wrong part of a pop song, it, it's discordant and it actually... Uh, breaks down the the sort of the thing that would naturally um, not need to be said. So mm. for sure, depiction mm. way down the line. And, and I mean, I love depiction. I love and it actually, too, the but it doesn't that, serve a painting in the sense that it's... Uh, well, there's a painting. I mean, it was the first time mm. I really thought about depiction and, and reflected on how deeply I care and love the problem of depiction in painting. It is a David Hockney painting that's mm -hmm. owned by the Met and was in that show. And it's a it's a painting of a potted uh, plant on a windowsill. Mm -hmm. So you're looking through a window and there's this potted plant. And the plant is, I don't know what kind of plant it is, but it's one of these plants that has two or three 
long, uh, straight, vertical green leaves coming out of it. Mm-hmm. I think and, I know the one you're talking and, about. And, and the main leaf, the dominant leaf in the plant, is twisting mm-hmm. as it goes up. And the way that he captures in depiction the curving surface of this leaf and the way that the light changes as the leaf curves in space i mean it's a very it's a very very special and deep thing that that painting can still do i mean in spite of you know there's all this like um i mean the the technological capacities for depiction and representation are like just gonna get more and more out crazy Uh you know it's like never gonna I mean, it's insane, but I I do feel that a painting still has this, um, you know, uncanny power to depict things and to to be, it's maybe connected to the uncanny. Like, Mm -hmm. they have a presence that media rarely has. I agree with that. I'm I'm a little curious. This is definitely an aside, but um, most David Hockney people I meet are equally uh, in love with Matisse. But then I'm thinking about your love of depiction, and I would, for myself, I would say that what I love the most from Matisse is not depiction. It's 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 almost the absence of that and the cruddy paint handling because what what is there is space and what is there is color and vibrancy and joy and all these things do you are you one of the uh, do you find yourself in one camp or another on the guy or i mean i you... love matisse mm-hmm. um and i think but i would agree with you like i i feel like matisse it's like the vibes it's it's the way yeah. that he's able to approach i actually think i mean i feel like people you've made a punk music comparison before that was interesting and i i liked it i feel like people often make these punk comparisons in ways that this is not what you did but uh-huh. in ways where they would be like um oh yeah like jonathan misa is so punk because mm. like he doesn't ca- you know he's like oh, got an attitude sort of or no, 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 and i actually uh... feel like matisse is really like I mean, the the craft, the construction of punk, the thing to me that's so beautiful about punk music is there's this democracy in punk music. It's mm. sort of like, you don't need to be like a great music, technical musician to make punk music. What you need is the willingness to, to loosen up, have a good time, yeah. love the beauty of like being in a room with people and the beauty of sounds and instruments clanging and uh, mm-hmm. there's an, a tremendous democracy to it that's very de-skilled yeah. and to me that's like what matisse does like matisse is it feels even though i know there's there's tremendous skill in matisse but it of course but it's not the um ostentatious skill of, it's of it's picasso or right, right, right it doesn't lead the uh the painting or one's enjoyment of the painting it's it's implicitly there because it's matisse but it's you know i still think sometimes when i'm just scrubbing the shit out of a painting i'm like yeah, that guy was kind of a scrubber too you know and and that's scrubbing or you know Learning I feel bass mid- because no one plays bass. Both of those things are these. It gets you in an area that I do you write democratizing well, for the. Yeah, uh, I feel like art. Matisse is great because he figured out how to um, de-skill his practice and mm-hmm. and and loosen the reins and let all of these things that were in the world already that were that were just 
tremendous like channel those things. I feel that he's a channeler. He's not a colonizer. He's a channeler. He's, he channeled this energy that to me is like implicit in, in looking at things and in paint and in color and in depiction. And he, I feel that his paintings really like he, he kind of let them happen or something. I don't know. I love those words all except for de-skill and it might yeah. be too much to, to go into, but I think that de-skilling is some, is like a type of word that is used so much to say, um, like I understand how you said it just then, but to sort of announce something that's not real because when I think of, you know, because uh, first of all, it's so cliche. So many of the greatest artists were secretly, and this is in quotations, even better artists, right? You got your Max Beckman, you see the stuff he was doing as a young man, or you see like Rembrandt. So all of this could be argued to be like de-skilling. And this was a big thing at school too, is like, oh yeah, you've got to learn the skills and then you de-skill and whatever. And what I think about it more as, and I actually, this is, brings me back to that word you used, um, is finding the vehicle for the thing that you want to make. The idea is you gather all the skills you possibly can to then find the vehicle that, that's um, why I, again, mentioned this before, but I love pop songs. It's like, what is the perfect way to get this thing across? Is it, it's pop song is not going to go super well if it's this um classical uh like multi-instrument i mean okay now i'm talking about something that i haven't listened to contemporary pop music in a little while to my own chagrin but what i'm saying is that it's yeah i just i something about that word get, makes me a little uncomfortable because i don't think it's what any of us are doing when we set aside a certain type of technical approach i think it's it's an awareness that we get and i think when matisse went there there was no way and I'm, no one would disagree with this that he could do that same sort of charged painting with skill with yeah, conventional yeah. skill no i take right? your point and i think it was like this big trendy word i you know at For some sure. point and um i yeah. think I, the way the metaphor i would use to think about it is um in the study of evolution in in the conception of organisms as having a metabolic um a global metabolic economy within them mm. whereby because you might wonder if you're if you're thinking about evolution like why not just give human beings 12 foot long legs and 100 pound brains wouldn't mm. a 100 pound brain be great because then you know all these extra you know you could have like 20 dolphin brains in there right. wouldn't that be great the reason that it wouldn't be great is that it would cost the organism elsewhere to oh, have to hold absolutely up right. yeah. to, to have yeah. to hold up that hundred pound brain. So the gains that you would get in terms of, you know, extra neural synapses would be counterveiled by the costs to the organism. So even like right. in the theory of evolution, like there's this conception of metabolic um, coherence that every, every, 
strength you have also takes energy away from something over here that could be a potential strength but isn't you know and so functional organisms compromise all of the different strengths against each other and try to maximize every strength i'm talking about evolution like it's a person making a machine which Mm -hmm. it isn't obviously but and i think that that metaphor is helpful in thinking about this issue of skill where artists can learn um, tremendously advanced techniques and then at some point in their career grasp the way that the um, uh, sophistication or the, uh, you know, that all of the things that are, you know, um, positive about that, you know, advanced technique can also um, uh, be siphoning energy away from other kinds of possibilities in the artwork. That's a great point. And mm-hmm. that, you know, the way I guess that I was thinking about de-skilling and I appreciate, I mean, I think it's not, there could be, with the way that it's less interesting to think about de-skilling, and mm-hmm. I actually like have zero investment in that term, but yeah. the less interesting way to think about it is that it kind of fucked up looking things are cool because they adopt an attitude of like uh, of casualness or punk or whatever that seems like mm. cool and meaningful to people. Yeah. And I think it's more about the way, the more interesting way to think about it is the way that um, relinquishing one kind of capacity, let's say to like a hyper developed and rarefied skill, relinquishing that can free up um, energy or possibilities in other kinds of areas within a a practice or an artwork that are also interesting and that you can't necessarily that that not all artworks can do everything at once and Mm. that relinquishing rarefied skill might um, anticipate interesting possibilities in other kinds of realms of the work I love that yeah that's a I think that's a great um, a great way to think about it. Uh, listen, uh, is that good? That's a good capstone. I feel like that's yeah. a perfect way to. It's not going to get better. I don't know how many. It's I, only going down after that. I think so. That was the high water mark of the episode. I have a million more questions to ask you, but I think as we've already decided, this is part two that we just recorded. I think we're going to have to wait for the rest for part three, yeah, so that cool. you know, well, we'll do it sometime. Um, but this has been a pleasure. And that was my conversation with James English Leary. If you'd like to find out more about James's work, you can check out the links in the episode description. If you have any questions for me, please write into artmatterspodcast at gmail.com. If you're enjoying the podcast so far, please leave a rating or a review wherever you get your podcasts and share your favorite episodes with your friends on Instagram. This will be the last episode of Art Matters in 2023, so I want to say a big thank you to all of my Art Matters listeners. I hope you all have a great holiday and a happy new year. See you back in 2024 for the next episode of Art Matters, the podcast for artists.